Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this electrifying episode, we consider the contents of Starlog magazine from 1978 in issues 17 and 18, featuring Joe Crow and Gary Mitchell discuss sci-fi classics of the 1978 fall TV season. Paul Mount fills us in on Jerry Anderson's Space 1999 report. Tony Barletta discusses superhero shows including Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, The Incredible Hulk, and Doctor Strange. Rebel Legion members Mike and Kylie Jones consider the works of Star Wars producer Gary Kurtz in the article The Empire Strikes Back. Dr. Migo, Paul Clark, reminisces on what it was like to mail away for toys and collectibles. All this, plus Steven Spielberg, Battlestar Galactica, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, and more on Star Pod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We will be attending Superman's Celebration, July 30th through August 1st. What do you love about Superman Celebration? It's just a lot of fun. It's a big festival. It's um, mostly outside, and and it has the big statue of Superman, and we just love celebrating Superman and all the DC heroes. Also, August 6th through 8th, the Rockin' Pod Expo, Nashville, Tennessee. It's essentially a Comic-Con for rock and heavy metal fans. I mean, it's really cool. I go every year. Look forward to this one. And also... The greatest of them all. Dragon Con. September 2nd through the 6th. What can we say about Dragon Con? We go every year. I mean, it's like a a five-day party. Yeah, Atlanta is taken over by geeks. And it's every cool thing that you could think of. Under, what, six rooftops? Yeah, it's spread out over, what, well, five hotels plus the America's Mart. And it covers just about every every geeky fandom. It's really a pop culture convention. And we will be conducting multiple panels there and moderating as well. So we definitely look forward to that. Art Starlog Magazine, issue number 17, cover date October 1978. First article we're going to discuss... Filming the Fantastic, Steven Spielberg. At the age of 10, Steven Spielberg disobeyed his parents' orders and saw I Was a Teenage Werewolf. He had nightmares for two weeks. Twenty years later, Spielberg himself now causes countless numbers of film fanatics to lose sleep with his own widescreen scenarios. 
it's amazing to look at this article and it considers it's actually a short biography about Steven Spielberg. He was raised in a household that thought that watching TV and movies was generally a waste of time, especially anything like horror, fantasy, sci-fi, which is kind of wild when you think about it, looking at what he's produced. He didn't have a background in the fantastic. It's interesting. It's kind of like uh, not being allowed those things growing up is what made him want those things even more. And he credits famous monsters of Filmland for exposing him to this. And yes, he did have to sneak out to see I was a teenage werewolf. And it just, it gripped his imagination like he couldn't believe. Around 16 years old, he decided that he wanted to make his own home move me. And it would be a production. It wouldn't be just like most of us did with camcorders or, or small film recorders. But he actually wanted to produce it on a higher level because he started finding out more and more about the industry. So he did a lot of odd jobs, including some work with hedges and trees, whitewashing trees. I don't even know what that is. Like I had a paper route as a kid when, when I needed money. He always had a paper route and also mow lawns, things like that. But he was super ambitious, and his father actually nurtured this idea of creating a movie. So at such a young age, he did have a production. He actually had a premiere of it, and he got the money back plus $50. And this just spurred him on to do more. It's a great inspiration. But, yeah, he, he is like he, – he's such a, a big thinker, and he's and he had all these dreams, and it's like you, you couldn't hold him back. I mean, that that's what makes a great movie director. Yeah, he ended up doing some writing work as well. He did – some work with Night Gallery, so he said he did meet Rod Serling at one time, and he said Rod Serling was such an inspiration because he was so positive. Now think about that. Just the positivity of a person inspired him to do more. That's great. I mean, that that shows what what it is to just be nice to someone, uh, what, what it can um, encourage them to do, and you might not even know it. Yes, he ended up doing some scripts that didn't make it to the screen for The Man from U.N.C.L.E., and as time went on, he moved out of Arizona. His family moved to California, and he felt that he wanted to do more things. And the thing that helped him out, that his idea of Jaws and bringing this 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 idea of, the, of a shark that's greater than life, like what category would you call Jaws? Because that's the unique thing. Jaws is kind of multi-genre when you think about it. I think it's a thriller, is what they would call it. I would say that. Yeah, some people even call it a horror movie, an action movie. It, it and it is those things too. I mean, I you know, as a kid, I avoided it because I just thought it was a scary movie. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the idea: is he didn't want to make a genre film per se, but he had big ideas. And when it came to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he credits his father as being an inspiration. When he was 10 years old, his father said, hey, let's go out and look at the stars. His father knew that there was a, a meteor shower coming, that where they were, they didn't have light pollution in Arizona, so they were able to see it. And he said, I wanted to work in that frenzy of a father breaking into the bedroom in Close Encounters. I based that on my father busting into my bedroom saying, come on, come on, let's look outside. And so it's amazing how he took a piece of real world something that happened in his life, and he applied it into his film. And, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about Close Encounters of the Third Kind is that it does really have a lot of human elements in it. I think that that's one of the reasons people liked it. They recognized the humanity in it. I mean, the, these were people who were, um, you know, you know, not famous and not particularly 
uh, wealthy or and not didn't really have much going on. They had that they had messy homes and everything. You could see that. Just real people. So yeah, yeah, definitely uh, relatable people. And he said he was impressed with the merchandising for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He couldn't believe that people were really buying all these things. Necklaces, keychains. I mean, he he kind of got a glimpse of what the 70s was like. People wanted more. And it wasn't just the films, but it was the things that they came out of the films as well. And we know that this was just the beginning of what Steven Spielberg would do in the future. This is Eternal Zan, founder of the Cult of Marriott Carpet. If you'd like to join us, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash cult of Marriott Carpet, all one word. In the meantime, stay tuned for more exciting info on Starpod Log. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome myself and my cohort, my unindicted co-conspirator, um, from the American Sci-Fi Classics track at DragonCon, are super excited to be here. Let's introduce ourselves. I'm Gary Mitchell, and um, and I'm Joe Crow. Yeah, right. Wait, is Wait. that? I think we got that backwards. We did get that backwards. I'm Gary Crow, and I'm Joe Mitchell. Right. Yeah. Wait. There we go. That seems. It seems like there's something missing. We'll fix it in editing later. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, well... Because right now we're doing it live. Right now we are doing it live. That is the only way to do it. We are the co-directors of the American Sci-Fi Classics track at Dragon Con. And in addition to doing awesome stuff at Dragon Con on Labor Day weekend, we are doing live video panels every Thursday night on the YouTubes and the Facebooks at uh, just look for just google american sci-fi classics but we're here right now tonight to talk about an awesome issue of starlog magazine well one article the year was this uh, was this like uh, this a was, fall preview it was the special fall tv issue of october 1978 okay so I was but a mere youth of eight years old when this officially came out. Mm -hmm. I was seven, about to become eight. Uh So let's start with the end of the article, because there. uh, this is just a little six-page article. There are a crazy amount of sci-fi classic awesomeness things. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm this article but let's start at the end and we'll work our way backwards to the the main events um project ufo yes uh, a remember, jack web remember about the show i remember liking it um as a kid because it was trying to do you know a realistic take on the hunt you know it wasn't like project blue book or was it it was now it may be confusing because there was project blue book but i think that I can't remember if Project Blue Book was part of UFO or if Project Blue Book was a whole separate series. I should do some research. Uh, oh, that's but, not our thing, Gary. No, it is not. But, you know, it's from Jack Webb, you know, Just the Facts, Ma'am, Dragnet. Uh, so it's definitely got that. It, I remember it having that matter of fact, these two Air Force guys going out, talking to people, getting their stories of encounters with UFOs. And, you know, the whole, you did it really happen. 
Exactly. I, what I remember of it, it was kind of like a Scooby-Doo situation where it would turn out it was some, it was not UFOs. I could be mistaken, Mm -hmm. but I do remember these two dudes were just in their military suits. One of them was Colonel Flagg from MASH. Yes. And it was weird seeing him as the hero because he's kind of a jerk on Mm -hmm. MASH anyway. On MASH, anyway. But I remember digging this show, and in retrospect, looking way back at it now, this was kind of a prototype for X-Files. Yeah, very much so. And like the article points out, which I just re-read the article again, and it was the Project Blue Book did come from here. It was, You know, people talk about, you know, because the other guy was from Adam-12, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, Dragnet was very much Webb would go find these crime stories and he wanted it as dry and direct as possible. You know, just the facts was a catchphrase for a reason. And this was pretty much, you know, Dragnet UFO. Yeah. <laughs> Dragnet flying saucer. <laughs> so it was all very dry, very direct. There were some hints always that, you know, there might actually be something. But like you said, nine times out of ten, they went with the Scooby-Doo ending of, oh, it was just swamp gas. <laughs> that was what I was going to say. <laughs> How many episodes ended with swamp gas? <laughs> mm-hmm. But, but I, you know, UFOs I remember were hot. It. Yeah, I remember digging it, and but I, I don't remember watching really more than one or two episodes of it. I don't think it lasted super long, though. I think it only went like a season, and I remember I liked it. I know my mom liked it. Chariots of the Gods was all a big thing. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, and like you said, it's very much a proto, proto, to prototype um, X-Files meets Kolchak kind of thing. But I remember as a kid, as, as, a, as, a, as, an eight, as a seven, eight-year-old kid, I dug it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure um... – I mean, we're, 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 it's 2021 now. I'm sure mm-hmm. you can find this show. It oh, yeah. may have had an official release at some point, but I'm sure, you know, uh, look, on, look on the YouTubes. I'm sure mm-hmm. it's out there somewhere. Yeah, and so it, if you're – mind you, I'm looking at this through the nostalgia filter because I don't think I've watched it since it aired. No, I don't think um, I but I, I, if you're a fan of the, the 70s genre shows, the sci-fi ones, then you, this will probably be right up your alley. And if you're a fan of, you know, Jack Webb's other works, then, and then you know, it's it's like right up your uh, weirdly niched alley. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, recommend it. Recommend it. Let's, uh, maybe that's what we'll do. Like, as we're going through, we'll, like, we'll re- recommend you Google it and f- try to find it as, yes. as, uh, as we go through. And the next thing up is Brave New World. It was yes. a four hour NBC novel for television. Oh, remember yeah. when they used to do that all the time? A novel for television. Oh, yeah. I remember that. But I confess that I do not remember this. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm of the same way. I mean, Brave New World is a a titan of sci-fi literature. It's one of the ones everybody likes to talk about. Um and there was that recent TV series on I think Apple. Jessa just watched it actually. Oh, okay. And she liked it. Uh I watched the first episode. But and, yeah, and, and I'm that's looking where at your the review ends. <laughs> yeah. And 
you know, I'm looking at the picture, I'm looking at the cast list, and I read the article, and I'm like, I have no memory of this. Now it has Gandalf and or the you know Lord Fellowship yeah. of the Ring. I have no memory of this place. <laughs> I have yeah, now it has top notch people in it. Uh, oh Kira yeah, Kier Dulay, who are, mm -hmm. uh, who we've met at DragonCon. He yes. was in two thousand one, a space odyssey with yep. uh, your 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 namesake Gary Mitchell. Yep, Gary Lockwood. And um, so he was he he was uh, a character in this, and so was uh, Bud Court, mm -hmm. um, famous to me from Arrested Development, where he, <laughs> where he was the judge on Bud Court. Uh, let's see, Ron O'Neill, I believe he played Superfly. Yes, <laughs> and um, Marcia Strassman, who was the I believe she was Bob Newhart's wife on the first Bob Newhart show. Maybe, probably. I believe that is, and, and I, you know, and I, if if she wasn't that, and I'm again, boy, maybe research is a thing that I don't know. I'm mm -hmm. not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like when uh, if if you Google her name, you're going to see, you're going to remember ten things that she's been in. Oh yeah, absolutely. She's one of those. Name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, What's fun about reading the article for me is, you know, we get, it's like 1978 is for many years ago. And it's all the same thing that we hear today of any adaptation of a book of, I respect the book enormously. The book is the star. And I was like, yeah, no, we, <laughs> that has not that. changed. We have heard that so many times, you and I have. And mm -hmm. we've heard it in interviews coming out of the mouths of people. Who, who have made like they were in the in the room as a same room as us saying that mm -hmm. same thing, and sometimes I don't know if I could my eyes could roll back in my head any further. But uh, yeah, and my other favorite bit out of the article is the we've updated the Huxley in two ways. First, babies no longer come out of bobbles; they come out of bags. Ooh, <laughs> big change there, lady. Good Way job. To step out and take a risk. Let's really go out on a limb with this, yeah. with this thing. Let's really kick this one up a notch. Yeah. And then the <laughs> other would be, second, we've come up with a language like, quote, kids will like, unquote. What? <laughs> so and that's another thing that hasn't changed. We're getting, hey, fellow kids. Oh, yeah. We're oh. hip. I mean, these, are, these are the prototypical um Old TV writers, I'm guessing, mm -hmm. with their and uh, <laughs> with their white short sleeve button up shirts rolled up, with the cigarette about to uh, down to its last ash, and they're still typing away at 3 a.m. I got hey, I got pogs, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey Frank, let's put them in bags instead of bottles. Ah. <laughs> oh. So I'm sure it's available somewhere. But I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. And, you know, book fans, like you said, there is a more recent version of this thing. And um, mm -hmm. hopefully it's good. I okay. don't think Superfly is in it. So already <laughs> I'm. <laughs> oh, it has uh, the Young Hong solo guy and the guy who was in Game of Thrones as Danny's brother who gets his head melted with the gold. Oh, Okay. All right. Yeah. Still not super fly. Nope. 
Not Superfly. <laughs> or Judge Bud Court. True. But well, let's keep let's keep her moving. Let's go to now we're talking. Now we're now we're getting somewhere. Do you remember the live action Mandrake the Magician? I actually do not. <laughs> but well, I, I, I remember what I, I read and loved the comic strip as a kid. Oh yeah. And I all I loved him when he was on Defenders of the Earth cartoon. That's where I was going with 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 this. Um, but yeah, very. Um, and I think probably anybody who worked on Doctor Strange back in the day would admit, oh yeah, there's mm-hmm. Mandrake has is part of the building blocks of Doctor Strange. But I feel like I do remember this. I could mm. be wrong, but. It, I was eight. I watched everything that came on television. And this was well, their yeah. attempt. Well, and also in 1978, it was easier to watch everything because there was only three channels. So. Yeah. And um, if you were like me, uh, really, you could only really pick up two of them. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't really get CBS until we got cable, <laughs> which was well into many years later. But um, this one has a, uh, whereas Mandrake the Magician is a comic strip character. He's owned by King Features. So he was, yep. and of course, like you said, Defenders of the Earth, he's in the same universe as the Phantom and Flash Gordon. Right. Uh, but And the, that other guy that they invented for the show, whose name I yes. forget. But the, um, this TV movie was just, he's a, he's, he's a detective who does magic, which yep. is, that's what he was in, in the comic strip too. But I do like that one of the characters in the cast list here, his name is Alec Gordon, <laughs> a combo of creator Alec, Alex Raymond. And of course, Mr. Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, apparently Robert Reed, Mr. Brady himself was mm-hmm. in this. Yeah. Robert Reed and Her- the, they actually got some real magician cred. They got Harry Blackstone Jr. Oh, why didn't he play manager? And maybe he couldn't act. I don't know. Then he wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have had to do stunts. He could have yeah. just done the, I'm sure Harry Blackstone, of course, an actual sorcerer. Come mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the fun thing about this reading the article is, you know, the, everything was a detect. Every, almost everything was like a detective show or a cop show. And they were always trying to find a new spin on it. You know, with the Rockford files, it was, he was broke <laughs> and yeah. not very good at it. Um, <laughs> So I'm but guessing Mandrake, you know, having that edge of, well, he's also a magician. Yeah, uh, it says, let's see, Mandrake needs all the spectacular magic he can muster when a man dies mysteriously during his Las Vegas performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so every episode, does somebody almost die at, at one of his shows? <laughs> That's a very murder she wrote kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Like maybe uh, now, now that's an episode of Murder She What I Want. I want actually, yeah. Like, hey, maybe Mandrake has something to do with all this. But no, it. it uh, let's see, Anthony Herrera, who mm-hmm. whose name is familiar to me, so he's been he's been in things. But yeah, he. Uh, it just says he he just does detective stuff. But they updated Lothar, the sidekick. Yes. Oh, that was the guy on Defenders of the Earth. He was the other guy. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> not made up for defenders of the earth. Mm-hmm. Well, they did a. <clears throat> wow. They changed him a bit. They uh, gave him something 
what the heck happened to my voice? <laughs> it's it's Lothar. It's the curse of Mandrake. The curse of Mandrake has gotten my voice. <laughs> this is great. Okay, I think I'm okay. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I remember maybe. Well, I think there was just this movie. I don't think there was anything more than that. I feel no. like I saw it. I think I may have gotten the VHS tape at a convention years later. Yeah. My other favorite bit from the article is talking about the, they're like the bad guy who is, you know, 1978, he's demanding $10 million or he'll systematically explode everything that one character ever owned, (laughs) including a nuclear reactor. (laughs) And then they follow that with, we're trying to maintain the fun of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. But yeah, I I would say give this one a look. For, uh, I would say look for this one. I yeah. um I, I think it's it's a uh, it's probably cheesy seventies, and I say cheesy with the utmost of respect because mm-hmm. cheese is good for you. Absolutely, it's but part of this healthy diet. Yeah. Now let's go to the next page, and now we're getting into the good the five star good stuff. That I think mm-hmm. maybe lots more people will remember, starting with the Godzilla cartoon. Yes. Up from the depths, 40 uh, stories high, breathing fire. His head in the sky, Godzilla. And Godzilla. And that's the part as a kid, I was like, I gotta tune out for a minute. <laughs> Freaking Godzuki. And you know, the, and, but, the, and the original Scrappy Doo. Yes. 100%. And in fact, we'll get to the second Scrappy Doo in just a minute on this same network, NBC, yes. the same year. But I super was into the Godzilla cartoon, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had the uh, the Godzilla with the tongue that would flick out. The Shogun Warrior Godzilla. Yes, I love that toy. And did um, sidebar Funko the the uh, reaction people? They're putting out a new version of yeah. that Godzilla. I saw it. Will be mine. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I because I ooh because mm, my the tongue on my guy broke off almost immediately. <laughs> But but now this this cartoon was, um, the, I mean they figured out the, an ingenious way to use Godzilla, and by that mm-hmm. I mean hardly ever. Right. Well, it was like the Incredible Hulk. You, you would show, you know, we're all here just waiting for Godzilla. We're all just here just waiting for the Hulk. They show up at the one moment, and you go, "Yes, he's finally here!" And they do the thing, and then he goes away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this that they've added and the rest it. of the time it was you know either Bill Bixby running around being beaten up by bullies or it was this crew on the boat running into a monster going how can we defeat it call Godzilla no no it's not dangerous enough and they had they had a beeper didn't yes. they to call Godzilla and he was always sleeping mm-hmm. so I'm like man he's gonna be grumpy when he. <laughs> You're you're waking the poor the poor king of the monsters up from sleep to come mm-hmm. to come to come handle your business, and um and and they would always I would say maybe not always it was like a Star Trek communicator issue mm-hmm. they would always lose the beeper 
Yes. We well, should call if we're Godzilla for help. Where's the beeper? Oh no, Godzuki did something stupid to it again. <laughs> <laughs> but um, somehow they managed to um wait, did he have fire breath? He did have fire breath. He didn't have atomic breath. He had fire breath. Because, okay. You know, Saturday yeah. morning. Now he didn't, you know, set things on fire or anything. Well, like no, that. he just breathed the fire and the bad and guys. I feel like he away. had he had heat vision too, didn't he? Maybe not. Maybe? I don't know. Okay. Godzuki could could blow smoke bubbles. Yes. But that was probably... Well, you know, because he's little baby Godzilla. And maybe he had like a a two-pack-a-day camel. (laughs) (laughs) How do we keep Godzuki around? We just keep giving him boxes of camels. (laughs) (laughs) But this is... um, I I love looking back at old magazines like this because Mm -hmm. in one of the first paragraphs... Something I did not know about the Godzilla cartoon. It says that um, they showed. Uh, it says Dave Stevens, and I wonder if mm-hmm. that's the Rocketeer from comic books, Dave Stevens. It might Maybe. not be. It could be. It might not be. But anywho, um, he says that uh, they, the fellow who owns the rights to Godzilla, said that Godzilla's what when he showed him the designs for the Godzilla cartoon character. He said that uh, it he doesn't look enough like an ape, mm-hmm. and my thought was because he's a lizard, right, <laughs> or a, a dinosaur. But apparently that was not the issue, not an issue. But well, correct uh, oh, me if I'm wrong. Isn't Godzilla or Gojira like gorilla whale? You know what? Now that you say that, that sounds familiar. I think maybe yeah. I, I, okay. Everybody's screaming at the comments as you're listening to this podcast. Please send your hate mail to <laughs> hate mail at what the cast. Crow at gmail.com. If you <laughs> wait, did I just give out my actual email address? I think you did. Well, you gave out your actual real phone number in the Facebook group. So I've done that as well. But uh, anyway, it says that uh, we ended up altering him so that he had flared nostrils and a blunt nose, a blunt oh. snout. And I see it now. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I uh, but he he looked very similar to the uh, the movie Godzilla to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I accept this as Godzilla canon. <laughs> Absolutely. And my other my far you know still sticking with the article. My favorite bit is like none of the monsters he fights are the ones you've seen in the films. Thankfully, thankfully, but, there's really? no small monster, but they've got a few mythological creatures in there. And this is my favorite quote here. Um, there's another episode where he fights himself. I don't know where they came up with that. Like, really, uh, but, dude? You're running the show, and you but, don't know where... Okay. Where... Yeah, wh- where were you when they were writing everything? I don't know where they... Ha- have. Has he not heard of Godzilla or mm-hmm. science fiction before? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but now that... Yeah, I think I remember that episode because there was like a a mirror Mm -hmm. and Godzilla was pounding on the mirror trying to get to the other Godzilla. Yeah. The one that always stuck with me that I thought was clever is, and this was an ingenious idea for saving money. He fought an invisible monster. (laughs) Which means they didn't have to animate it. But at the end, they're like, how is Godzilla going to fight a monster he can't see? And they had uh, the helicopter fly over the monster and dump buckets of paint on it. Yes. 
So then Godzilla I, could seed it. And I totally remember that. And I always thought, oh, that's a clever way to get around invisibility. But again, and then as an adult, I go, oh, that's a clever way to not spend money. <laughs> now let's go to the next thing. And already we're running way low on time, but I could spend, and I think you could as well, spend uh, a very long time on our next topic, the Fantastic Four cartoon from 1978. I love the Human Torch. Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) It's wild to me that his replacement, Herbie, people still remember in a... But he hasn't. He doesn't have the same level of animosity that Scrappy Doo mm-hmm. had. No. But but he they worked him into the comics later. Um, they uh, he was on the Superhero Squad TV mm-hmm. show on Disney Plus now, and um, there's a Funko Pop of Herbie. Yes. Which is bizarre because it was one character in one thing, f- almost fifty years ago. Yeah. I remember I almost bought the there was the Marvel Legends Sue Storm figure where the the Sue Storm figure didn't look that great. She had a few translucent pieces, but she came with a Herbie and I almost bought it just to get that damn Herbie. Well, um, confession time. I did buy that. (laughs) (laughs) I am not surprised. I know I've got Herbie uh, in in my action figure box right here. I'm, I'm looking at the box. Herbie's in there somewhere. Okay, <laughs> but I I love the fact that Stan Lee, you know, they're interviewing Stan, who was pitching everything at the time. He wanted All every Marvel time. thing, Doing and it. they just kept calling him Lee. Lee went on to explain this. Lee went on to do that. It's like it's Stan Lee. <laughs> Come on, I give mean, him his name back. <laughs> but the, the this guy, but the fact that he got this on television was an amazing thing for one thing. But the series itself, not bad. No, I didn't know at the time that um, I guess at at uh, I had not gotten into my uncle's Marvel comics at the time. I was just a DC kid at the time, and because my uncle was a DC guy, and his Marvels were buried under the under the stack. Well, I had to get to the bottom of the stack to get to the Marvels. Mm-hmm. But once I started reading Fantastic Four, I recognized that. This series adapted the actual comic stories, some of them. Yeah. So well, the story, the article says the storyboards are all being done by Jack Kirby, so it doesn't see, get much more legit than that. You really can't. And um, the 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 I believe uh, Ted Cassidy did the voice of mm-hmm. the thing Lurch from the Adams Family. Yep. But my the the little bit of trivia that comes from this article is that. Um, they made a cute little robot, they say, and they call him Charlie. Yes. So at the time of this article, he had did not even have a name yet. Yep. Yep, because they'd sold off, because this is what Marvel did at the time. They'd sold off all the rights to the individual characters to different studios. And so the Human Torch was sold off to Universal, so they couldn't use him. So as Lee puts it himself, quote, in order to justify calling them the Fantastic Four, we simply created a cute little robot. There's got to be four of them to call them the Fantastic Four. That's that makes sense. That makes good sense. And here's what gets me. He says, uh, "Let's see, the Human Torch was, of course, the the uh, rumor that we all heard for many mm-hmm. years was they were afraid children would catch themselves on fire." 
Right. Like all those yeah. kids who jumped off buildings trying to be Superman. Yeah. Kids were dumb. Yes. In the 70s. We, we were dumb in the 70s because I jumped off many a roof. Yes. And <laughs> did it didn't hurt you none. <laughs> yeah. I was a big fan of the flying nun. Yes. But <laughs> the um, 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 it says here that the Spidey Hulk, Captain America, and Ms. Marvel were sold off. Now, we know Hulk ended up happening. Spider-Man got his own live-action series. Captain America got two... Movies. Movies, yes, thank you. I was looking for an adjective, and I don't need one. (laughs) And Ms. Marvel. So they were trying to do, or intending to do, a Ms. Marvel thing in the 70s. Yeah. Which would have been... Take that, fanboys. <laughs> yeah. And now today, um, we were only a couple of years away from them actually finally getting it done. So that's wild. So let's uh, let's keep going. Anyway, uh, as we were saying, Godzilla and this FF cartoon, they're on the interweb somewhere. Oh, yeah. The FF cartoon is not on Disney Plus, though. Which Probably. I'm sure it'll be there at some point. I mean, Hopefully. it has to. It's 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 worth looking for. Now we're getting into the solid gold stuff. Oh the yes, original Battlestar Galactica. Oh, the sounds of Cylons. Yeah, <laughs> this is so worth watching. If mm-hmm. you grew up um, when we did on this show. Or if you grew up twenty years later watching the uh, the new one with uh, uh, Edward James Olmos, both viable, mm-hmm. worthwhile watches. Of course, the newer newer one, pretty serious and 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 bleak and mm-hmm. very science fictional, but also really good. Yes. Um, but this one, going back to nineteen seventy eight, the imagination. Mm-hmm. In all of this stuff, yeah. Well, again, we like we mentioned earlier with the project UFO, the UFOs, the Chariots of the Gods was a just went through a huge popularity boom in the mid to late seventies. Everybody, you know, ancient astronauts and the idea is that you know aliens came and built the pyramids, which is why Battlestar Galactica has a lot of those Egyptian touches. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I didn't make that connection um, 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 at the time, but the design of the Cylons mm-hmm. is one of my favorite things. Oh yeah, they were awesomely cool, and you know, with the with the vroom 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 and that the the electronic by your command, the way they talked. I mean, it was just it was like catnip for me as a kid. It's like I oh, love they were terrifyingly awesome bad guys um my um my my biggest memory of battlestar galactica was there was a contest in our local newspaper where you won something i Mm -hmm. i I don't i know i remember now you won a a gold cylon Mm, yeah the commander and all you had to do was identify then they didn't call it you won you won the Cylon because the contest itself was name the robots oh. on Battlestar Galactica. And I wrote Cylon, clipped it out of my paper and mailed it in the next week at the laundromat with my grandma and my aunt Naomi got the paper, looked in it, 
I was not a winner because they said the name of the robot is Cyclone. Oh, no. Yep. But look. I'd send them a very angry letter now. Do I seem bitter 40-something years later? But just, just maybe a smidge. Maybe a smidge. Would, you know, that'd be like the, the. It'd be like the name the robot Dave. His name's Dave. <laughs> sure, that's close enough. Yeah, that's Dave the Cylon. So somebody out there got it wrong and got that gold Cylon. And they're <laughs> out there with your gold Cylon uh, to this day. Yeah. <laughs> But but Battlestar Galactica, in fact, it's streaming right now. On mm-hmm. uh, in fact, I watched it just like a week or two ago, so it's easily findable. And, oh yeah! And over the years, if you've um, sadly, of course, he passed away several years ago. But over the years, if you've been at any conventions, you've seen or run into Richard Hatch, who especially DragonCon, he was practically is, a mascot. Yes, and. He absolutely loved this show and kept it alive mm-hmm. until its return. And he play, he had a role in the new one. Yeah, um, he wrote novels. And, yeah, uh, and I love the fact that it was just a one. It was supposed to be a one-off stunt casting thing, and he ended up becoming one of the most compelling characters on the show. Yeah, but no, um, gosh, the. Um, uh, Richard Hatch is was just one of and and he's terrific on the show. Mm-hmm. But the the whole cast, Jane Seymour was in, and of course, you know, uh, Paul Cartwright. Oh yeah, genius. Yes, and and we cannot not mention Starbuck, Dirk Benedict, who man, loved- he was the epitome of cool when I was a kid. Uh huh. When we would, when me and my friends would play with our Battlestar Galactica ships, everybody wanted to, fought over who was going to get to be Starbuck, and the leftovers had to pick like Apollo and Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing against Apollo or Boomer, great characters, no. but Starbuck was the guy. He had the cigar, he had the attitude. Your little brother had to play Daggett. Yes, freaking Boxy. Yeah, nobody liked Boxy. Nobody liked another Scrappy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> and the article itself, it's very bare bones. It's like two paragraphs and a bunch of pictures. But it's like, oh yeah, because they're still early in pre-production. I think they say here they've only filmed like the first three. Yeah, and they probably were not. It, it, they were probably thinking, I bet we're not going to make many more than this. Yeah, <laughs> they ended up making a, a fair amount. Mm-hmm. It went like, it went two seasons. Or one really like long too. season. It, the budget is what killed it. It was like a yeah in modern day dollar. It was something like a million dollars an episode now, which at the time was like, yeah, we can make six shows for this. Yeah, and um, of course, there the it ended with Galactica nineteen eighty, which the less said don't... the better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, um, if you, have... I think my favorite part of the article though is that picture of Adama in front of the board doing the what the hell is this. <laughs> the I mean, that's the look on his boy. face. He's gesturing like, "What the hell is this? Like, like whose job was this? <laughs> Frank, did you do this? <laughs> Little Joe, come here. <laughs> Little Joe, exactly. Little Joe, clearly this is your fault. Hmm. 
It's like somebody set the map on fire again. Uh, but I, I do like uh, the uh, a, a caption up uh, on top of the page. It says, um, intent on wiping out the human, quote, pest, Cylon centurions have created an exotic, quote, flytrap in the form of a tourist casino, which is remarkably similar to a cantina on mm. something else that was famous around around this time. But top notch, seek out Battlestar Galactica if you you haven't. Indeed. Uh, and lastly, well no, actually there's one before that, uh before our big main event, Nova. Yes. As a science nerd as a kid, Nova was oh, it was just it was a must watch. Getting my science and because we were in, the, we were still kind of doing the space race. Yeah, we thought it wasn't. It was something that was going to be an ongoing situation. After we got to the moon, we we thought there was every intent that we were going to keep going back and doing tons of stuff. And it was a space and sci-fi and that kind of thing were very much in the cultural. They had a moment. They had a very mm-hmm. long moment, I think. And, of course, Star Wars certainly helped. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, but Nova, iconic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're talking here about the two particular episodes, One Small Step, which is a retrospect of the first 20 years, which was recent. <laughs> yeah. At <that laughs> the first time. 20 years of space program. And then the second one being... And I was looking right at it, and I just lost it. But yeah, the Final Frontier. Frontier. We're talking about further exploration of space, and just, God, we were so optimistic. Yeah. Now, I I remember, um, and I may be making this up, but I'm going to say it anyway. I remember being disappointed to find out this was just a PBS science show and not a show about Richard Ryder from Marvel Comics. Mm. Rocket, the human rocket. Yes. And he'll be in live action one day. And he'll One probably fight, day he'll probably fight the cyclones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still mad, but but the, instead uh, of gold, he'll be ochre. <laughs> but now the big main event, Buck Rogers. Yeah, and this is actually a really cool article because you can tell they're really just starting to put the idea together of what the show is going to be, and they're talking about what they're going to do with the property and how they're going to change it. And they're just gushing over Gary Larson in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, one of my favorite things about this article is they have um, uh, an illustration from William Stout, Mm -hmm. who you and I and a lot of Dragon Con uh, and and sci-fi fans everywhere have had chance to meet because this dude is, is a frequent convention goer. Yes, and he's his stories are the best. Yeah, if you ever have a chance to go to a panel where he's just telling stories or talking, go. He has some of the best stories. He tells them well. And if you don't know who he is, um, he designed the original Dragon Con logo. He was the per- he was a production designer, I think on, I believe on Ghostbusters. He was definitely the main production designer for Return of the Living Dead. He was he worked on Conan. He worked on 
Masters uh, of the Universe. Masters of the Universe is the big one. Um, well, at least for me. That I mean, yeah. probably bigger. You know, Conan technically would be bigger. But. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, yeah. no, he, uh, he he did so many things, and that, and I know that I know he he's on the web, and I think there's a a book of his art maybe has mm-hmm. come out in the last few years, but the stories are just being like kind of sitting under the learning tree, listening to this guy. Mm-hmm. And it, he's, he's just the coolest. It's like he drives into the panel room on a motorcycle. I don't think yes. that's safe. And I don't think he's actually allowed to do that, but I bet he would if he could. Yes. But in addition to William Stout, the rest of the show is good too. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know they ever used any of his artwork or designs for the actual series. But that first episode, I literally rewatched it a week ago. Oh, it's on the NBC app. And Mm. uh, it's, um, it's, it's worth going and checking out because I didn't remember half of it. Yeah. Uh, Well, I remember loving it as a kid and just, you know, being all into it and it's, and watching it as an adult. And now it's so seventies. I mean, it's yeah futuristic, but it's seventies. There's the disco sequence, the costuming. It's, it just, it, 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 it could not be more seventies. The unforgiving costume. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, now- and, uh, Aaron. Aaron have talked about how unforgiving those suits were, but she was one of my first crushes because of that white suit. Oh, <laughs> me too. Me too. And of course the legendary Felix Sela as Tweaky. Mm-hmm. Voiced by was... ML Blank. Uh, that's right. That's right. Um, now everybody, this was a show that I watched chapter and verse mm-hmm. start to finish. There was the Jack Palance episode. Oh Yes. Jack, if you pay me, I'll show up, Palance. Yeah. <laughs> he, but the um, uh, everything about this show, um, mm-hmm. the very clearly, Gil Gerard took his performance from Han Solo. Oh, yeah. Which, again, not a complaint. Mm-hmm. Both. That's great. a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but the... Uh, the 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 look of the show, the designs, the spaceship effects, mm-hmm. all tremendous. At- yeah, and even when they did the complete redesign of the show for the second season to try to keep the ratings going, and they brought in Hawk, it still worked for me as a kid because that Hawk guy was awesome. He looked cool. Yes, he was. He was a Hawk man, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I thought, well, this is the this must be the coolest person I've ever seen on television. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it, the, the the show is is well worth rewatching. But like you said, the now the nostalgia factor, sure. But if oh, yeah. you've never seen it, you don't have that. So go ahead and <laughs> give it a shot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, give it a shot. And and the article is fun. It really gives. It's definitely a puff. Let's be honest. The whole article, all of them are puff pieces. But it's a well written puff piece, and it gives you. I mean. I would definitely seek this out, read it, especially if you're a fan of the properties from back in the day, you know, go back and get a look and see what it was like, you know, when it was new before it had come out and people were excited about it. Starlog magazine was the only thing we had at the time. Yeah. 
And it was the inner the internet as far as we knew. I mean, that was where we got all of our information about everything. And all they had was what tidbits the studios would dribble down to them. So a lot of the stuff that they would report as news would never happen. I remember my, my big memory of Starlog is at the end of every month, they would have a list of all these sci-fi things that were in development. Mm-hmm. And I feel like like in the early 80s, they said, coming in, coming next summer, Spider-Man, the motion picture. And well, that that didn't happen. <laughs> not, 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 not for a long time. Not for like, yeah, if they had said coming in 20 years. I don't know how I would have felt about that. <laughs> but good stuff. Uh, we at the American Sci-Fi Classics track, all year round, not just during convention season, we talk about this stuff all the time. This uh, It's not just a 70s thing, not just a nostalgia thing, and not just a childhood look-back thing. I mean, these this is quality could these these are quality creations and it's mm-hmm. neat to go back into the archives basically yeah yeah it it's fun to go back and look and, and again like i said it's it they're puff pieces but they're well done puff pieces and sometimes there's nothing wrong with a puff piece give me exactly. give me you know give me the teaser to let me watch this Get me yeah, interested. Yeah, 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 don't don't tell me everything that's going to happen. Give me a teaser. And I got to say, from reading this article in Starlog, I'm kind of excited about all these things that, mm-hmm. that we've talked about tonight. I'm going to go uh, look up uh, Project UFO, and I may go and uh, rewatch some Godzilla or some FF. I don't know that I'm going to go and look for Brave New World. No. <laughs> Yeah, if there's anything you're going to watch out of what we've said here, I would say Battlestar Galactica. If you're going to watch only two of only one thing, if you're going to watch two, watch that in Buck Rogers. If you're going to watch yeah. three, then you're on your own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just take your pick from what's left. <laughs> if you want a robot to replace the Human Torch, then watch the FF cartoon. Exactly. Because, because they he really does. It's a it's a one for one replacement. He has. Oh, absolutely behavior as Johnny Storm and he irritates the thing to my recollection. But anywho, all nineteen seventy eight was a big year, apparently. Um mm-hmm. and so seek all that stuff out and seek us out. Gary, tell them where they can find us. They can find us on Facebook if they look in the groups, uh, Facebook slash groups slash DragonCon American Sci-Fi Classics. Uh, you can find us on the YouTube by searching for American Sci-Fi Classics. Uh, you can find me on the Twitter as at Gary underscore Mitchell, Mitchell with one L. Yes, Star Trek fans, it's my real name. And you can <laughs> find Joe as at Sci-Fi Classic Track on the Twitter. Uh, and join us every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern on the Facebook or on the YouTube. We might even Twitch one day. That's right. And if you happen to be in Atlanta on Labor Day weekend, we'll be in the basement at the Marriott. Hi, I'm Al Milgram. You may remember me from a ton of work at Marvel, doing Captain Marvel, Spider-Man, the Avengers, the West Coast Avengers, Guardians of the Galaxy, you name it, I worked on it. And, of course, Firestorm at D.C. Uh, And when I want to hear more about comic books or related subjects... I always listen to Star Pod Log.
Return of the Video Superheroes, and Doctor Strange. We'd like to, at this time, introduce into this segment to join in the conversation, Tony Barletta from the Dragon Con comic book track. Welcome back to the show, Tony. Hi, thank you for having me. Great to be back. Hey, baby doll. Do you have fond memories of watching shows like Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, you know, my parents actually watched both of those shows. So it was just amazing. They didn't really watch anything else of that, of that genre. But, um, yeah, the Incredible Hulk was on for, for so many seasons. And so my parents actually did watch it week after week. And, um, I thought that was pretty neat. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I loved superheroes. I guess that's why I have such a massive comic book collection. I, I never grew out of it. It's just some, I just was always gravitated towards superheroes. And, um, you know, before those primetime shows, I remember as a, a younger kid, um, you know, that they had the, the Shazam and, and ISA shows. And, uh, I'd get up at like, uh, crazy hours to watch, uh, you know, like Superman reruns from the sixties. I couldn't get enough superhero shows. And, you know, I think the 70s are cool in that they they started to, it's the first time you really saw them start to branch superheroes out into primetime for an all-audience uh, kind of show. Yeah, you know what I liked about The Incredible Hulk? That it was a continuing show, and you actually had compassion for The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, I'd like to see him bust things up and rip out of his shirt, but... When I was a kid, I'd watch it on Friday nights. I remember watching it back-to-back with Dukes of Hazard. But as an adult, you watch it, and it, it's such a compassionate story. You really feel for him. Yeah, I mean, he, in keeping kind of with the comics, I mean, he's a hero, but at the same time, he's a tragic character. Um, and, and, and Banner can never escape the tra- tragedy of his own transformation, and uh, I think Bill Bixby was just brilliant in that role. I mean, I don't, I can't recall anything else I've seen Bixby in myself, but I, other than that show, but he was just a brilliant actor in that show. Um, he brought, oh, he brought it to life. And of course, Lou Ferrigno is the Hulk. I mean, you know, we've seen great Hulks in CGI in modern day, but I mean, the best live action Hulk, of course, is Lou Ferrigno. He, uh, he made you one. think. Yeah. yeah, he made you – and the way the, the effects were for the day, I mean, it really made you think that uh, Bixby became Ferrigno. It really looked like it. The, the article actually says they were going for the for the King Kong experience where it's a monster that, that you feel sorry for. And that, that was a great aspect of the show. I think that's something that, – that's the reason my parents could, could enjoy it. It had that very human element. Now, how about Wonder Woman? We were all fans of Wonder Woman. I mean, no matter how it was, was the 40s or the 70s, I liked both versions. And that's what this article talks about is there's some big changes coming up from Wonder Woman. It wasn't going to be in the 1940s anymore. It was going to be a contemporary show in the 1970s setting. Yeah, very true. Um, Hulk was a contemporary show of its time in the 70s. Wonder Woman started right off the bat there in in World War II. And... Uh, was was did it successfully, and they decided to jump uh, at that time jump ahead to the seventies and uh, put her and Steve Trevor in that um, uh, head of that special government uh, investigative uh, office there uh, that always had her investigating new new uh, crises every every uh, every week there. 
And the little little robot that was talking to them, too. I remember that little robot. And, and I liked it both ways. But but when they when they put it in the seventies, they had much more colorful villains, and so that that was fun to watch. Yeah, I liked it better in the seventies as well. I think it was more relatable. The um the disco and the the woman with the spiders and all of that. It, it was I mean it was just fun campy stuff. They didn't really try to make that show as human. It, it was all just like it's like they knew they were doing a comic book show, and that's all they wanted to be really. But it, it was just great for the time. I love how Wonder Woman was just so glamorous and and always did the right thing. No doubt about it. But the producers were worried. The article says Wonder Woman once again was going up against its nemesis, the Donnie and Marie show. And you know, that, that totally explains why growing up in the 70s, I never saw Donnie and Marie. I didn't realize it, but I was always watching Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I hated that too because if they weren't on at the same time, I would have watched both shows. But, uh, but, and I think I did watch Donnie and Marie at some point. But like whenever it wasn't on at the same time as Wonder Woman. Yeah, I liked a lot of those seventies variety shows, whether it be Sunny and Cher. There are a bunch of them. Do you yeah, remember? It yeah. seemed like there were the tons of those type of shows on there. Now this is something a lot of people forget about. I think that there were just problems with distribution, but there was a live action Spider Man show. I remember watching it with my brother. He had bracelets on, and he'd shoot rope out of the bracelets. I mean, I liked it because it was Spider-Man, but it was kind of weird in the same way. I have a hard time trying to figure out when I watched it. Um, reading the article, I I didn't realize it was an actually a primetime television show. I remember as a kid watching. I must have caught the re. I might have caught one or two. But I think they were spaced so far apart. It seems like that show was only on one season. And and I did watch it. I just kind of, yeah, yeah, I don't think I really got into that one. But I watched it and I just said, okay, I mean, it's okay. Because I was a big fan of Shazam and Isis, the Saturday morning ones. They had Isis, Isis guest starred on Spider-Man. Uh, I think her name was Joanna Cameron, if I'm remembering that correctly. And she actually was... Uh, uh, a main character on one of the episodes that interacted with Peter there. Um, oh, you're saying the actress, not not the character. Yes, the actress that played Isis yeah, was yeah. Oh, uh, guest gorgeous. starring. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a great. Um, it was cool at the time because it's like, hey, look, there's the actress from Isis. There she is on Spider-Man. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a, a crossover, but it was sort of a crossover. You know what I know was more memorable for me was Spider-Man on the Electric Company. Oh, yeah, I loved that. Now, remember that he didn't talk on that. (laughs) (laughs) Also, there's an article about a new show coming up, a TV movie, Doctor Strange. I didn't see that. That was a TV movie? I remember the reason why I watched it is because my dad was a comic book fan. Anything that was out in the 50s and 60s, he knew about. And he said, oh, boys, Doctor Strange is going to be on. we got to watch this. And so I watched it because of my dad's prompting. And it was one of those things that I was kind of scared as a little kid watching it. It, it was kind of creepy. He looked, the outfit was kind of like the outfit that was in the comic books. But you know how they did with shows of that time? They never made the outfits really look like the comic book outfit they kind of modernized it and kind of trimmed it down a bit so it looked a little bit more realistic but for the time i enjoyed it 
I don't remember. I, I didn't come across it when it first came out for whatever reason. And I, looking back on it, just like you said, I don't think I knew anything about Doctor Strange at, at that time in my life. I was buying a lot of comics as a kid just because they were cheap. Um, it was fun entertainment. Uh, would, you know, you go to the, the, the newsstands, but I would, uh, I knew pretty much most DC and Marvel heroes, but I didn't know anything about Doctor Strange. I had no idea he existed, um, when it came out. And then years later, I heard about it and I thought, oh, that's cool. They made a Doctor Strange show I'd never seen. And then I did find a rebroadcast of it. So I came across it many years later. You know, it's, they did a pretty decent job. Um, it, it's, it's what you'd pretty much expect for Doctor Strange for the limits of a 70s TV show budget. I mean, when I look at these shows now, the, the fondest memories that I have are playing with my Mego dolls while watching the shows. Like I had the Mego doll of the Incredible Hulk. I had to have my doll when I watched the Incredible Hulk. When any of these shows came out and, and, and I had a doll of it, which, which we had a lot of Mego dolls because Mego was just king of the 70s when it came to toys. That, that that's the joy of it yeah out of these shows though i'd say my top ones were both the incredible hulk and wonder woman yeah back then i watched both of them and i thought they were great and yeah you know the thing wonder woman i mean that one i was really sad when uh when it got canceled i think looking at, at the wonder woman show how they embraced the 70s when you watch it now i can almost um i can see how it was a precursor to a few years after that, the Buck Rogers TV series. Um, it, it felt, some of the tone of it, it's, it's bringing, you know, it, it, I think it it led to other things and, and not just Wonder Woman in, in a good way. Linda Carter was uh, the perfect actress for that role. And, I mean, you know, seeing her flying in an, an invisible plane, I mean, you know, how, how, how cool was that, you know? We're, I, I remember fascinated about that as a kid. And just, you know, yeah. I, I wanted to fly in on an invisible plane. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, I'm a kid, so why not? Hello, this is Paul Mountier reporting, as usual, from the UK and reporting specifically in this issue on Jerry Anderson's Space Report. This is an interesting feature, as we mentioned in the previous instalment. Um, Jerry Anderson's profile had increased somewhat in the United States, thanks to the cult appeal of Space 1999. And for a while, he was given his own column in Starlog magazine. It was called Space Report edited by David Hirsch, and in this particular edition of the column, uh, Jerry is writing across two pages uh, about part of his history, which I had totally forgotten about, and uh, will be very interested to see again, so I shall be scuttling to YouTube as soon as I finish recording, to see if I can find Alien Attack. This was a production that Jerry put together in 1977, um, advertising Jif dessert topping in the UK. Uh, um, a very popular um, uh, sweet uh, topping, which was obviously available. I don't, I don't really remember it, but I do remember the advert "Alien Attack," which required Jerry to recreate the supermarination extravaganzas of the 1960s. And as he reports in um, the Space Report article, um, this actually went back, and it, it again, it's always amazing to read. And fascinating to read these historical pieces, which are in the context of something which at the time was 
contemporary, but now, of course, is something which goes back 40-odd years. Um, Jerry reports, and this is, as I say, is dated January 1978. A little over a year ago, I received a call from Judy Hurst of Colette Dickinson Pearson Partners Limited, one of the biggest advertising agencies in London, with reel upon reel of award-winning commercials. Miss Hurst wanted us to make a commercial using the supermarination technique developed many years ago for Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet. The technique hadn't been used for many years in this country for the purpose of product commercials. And again, this is 1978, and Jerry's really talking about the previous decade. Um, it, it often dazzles me, the passage of time and, and reading things written 50 years ago. People talking about things which are fresh in their memory, really, or part of their recent history. He goes on to say that within hours I was studying their proposed script. I was aware the commercial would be expensive for it would mean creating new, highly sophisticated supermarination puppets and highly complicated mechanics to go with the puppets. When I quoted the estimated budget, it sounded more like Starlog's overseas phone number. Hmm, a rare bit of humour there for Mr Anderson. However, CDP consists of very experienced people, and if they believe an idea will sell their client's product, they can be very determined. The interesting point here is where he says that he sent a... Miss Hurst, a videotape of the pilot for Thunderbirds made in 1964. Again, this was just 14 years ago. Uh, it really did my heart good when they called to say that the whole agency had seen the Thunderbirds film and had loved it. Whatever dating had taken place had given it a certain amount of charm. Of course, now in 2021, we know that Thunderbirds still has that charm. It still doesn't seem particularly dated. Um, I watched an episode not that long ago and I was struck by how... Contemporary, it, it felt in terms of its pace, its script, the effects, of course, um, still look astonishing, even in these days of CGI and sophisticated computer technology effects. Thunderbirds, I think, is one of those shows that, you know, will never date if you look at it in the right way. Um, and it's incredible to think that in 1978, he was resurrecting techniques which he'd been using a decade or so before. Um, he goes on then in the article to say how he put together a team to make this commercial and again it's just fascinating the names that come back in this article who were working on this particular production um, normally the agency creates the storyboard but in this particular case however we were dealing with a specialized technique and the agency felt my staff and i would know more about the layout of this type of commercial than they would um he produ was produced by reg hill of course who's a name that anderson fans will be familiar with, with from so many of his shows uh, David Lane, who directed many Anderson shows and wrote many of them, of course, he also directed uh, the sets. Um, Red Hill designed the set. And John Brown, one of the puppeteers, puppeteers from the old days, came back and joined us with his wife, Wanda, who was at that time also an expert puppeteer. Um, and he goes on to say that they'd pretty much forgotten the techniques of, of filming in puppets. Of course, we all know that Jerry wasn't a fan of, of his puppet work and he did it in sufferance. But as they made this commercial alien attack, then they'd forgotten how hard it was to actually get the perspectives right and the, the right camera angles in which to get the best picture quality and so on. But all those techniques seemed to come back fairly quickly. Um, they sort of went back and found the old magic again. Uh, and interesting to see that uh, they cast three actors to record the dialogue for the puppets and uh, the three characters, basically the man, the woman and the professor. The man was played by, yep, good old Ed Bishop, um, an Anderson favourite and one of my favourites from his role as Colonel, um, Commander, sorry, Colonel, Commander Straker in the classic UFO. The woman played by Angela Richards and the professor by David Tate. 
It was all shot at EMI Studios in Boreham Wood over two days. Special effects featuring a fleet of flying dishes in the space battle were shot at Bray Studios in the capable hands, of course, the legendary Brian Johnson and Nick Alder. Um, which, this is an interesting um, feature here. He goes on to say that once it was all shot, he had the sets and the puppets shipped to Blackpool in England, where at the time they had a very extensive Jerry Anderson Space City exhibition. Now, I have very vague memories of seeing this exhibition. I can't really remember what was there now, but I'm imagining that there were classic props and sets and all sorts of things from the classic Anderson shows. Um, of course, Jerry was famous for just throwing out um, the props and things from his shows because he didn't think they were ever any value, but clearly a lot of them had been rescued and were put on display or possibly replicas. But he goes on to say that... Um, one fateful day, there was a cloudburst which caused thousands of people to fight for cover, many entering the exhibition. It may not be the best way to attract clients, but nevertheless, the exhibition was packed and some of the young people were carrying knapsacks. The attendants were unable to move freely. When the crowd thinned out, the puppets of the professional the woman had disappeared from his showcase. That's that's very sad. And, and, yeah, it's very depressing that people felt the need to pinch these things, to steal these artefacts. Um, you sort of, well, presume they're long gone now, but you wonder why, where they went, and what their ultimate fate was, whether they're still lurking somewhere. It's, um, but it's a shame that, you know, people have to help themselves to things that aren't theirs, particularly when they're things that have obviously made with a huge amount of attention and detail for professional purposes, and people just pinch them and take them away. Well, it's human nature, I suppose. Um, he goes on to say, then the film was cut together, everything worked, and we were soon in the dubbing theatre with the nostalgia of Barry Gray's old Thunderbirds music. Just within our deadline, the film was completed. Then we had to find a feature film which would be good to screen with our commercial. In England, commercials are shown in movie theatres between feature presentations. Yes, um, yeah, who'd, who knew? Uh, fortunately, a picture called Star Wars had just arrived in England, so they went on release together in December 1977. We were delighted to see throughout the United Kingdom hundreds of thousands of people standing in long lines waiting to see our commercial. That's right, Jerry. That's exactly what they were waiting for. I'm delighted to report that Alien Attack played its part in maintaining the already popular Jif desserts topping in its market position of number one. The whole experience reminded me of the magic of supermarination and set me thinking that it's about time we had another Thunderbirds-type series. Yeah, interesting. Um, I suppose we could wonder if that commercial set the um, laid the seeds for what eventually became Terrorhawks a few years later. Uh, another interesting space report from Jerry then reminded me of something which I had totally forgotten about. I do remember the alien attack advertisement because it was shown on television. And as I said, I will be scurrying off to YouTube to take a look at it now. The Joker, holy cow! It's Batman, sold separately, and the Wayne Foundation, a crime-fighting lab. Assembly required. The top floor is Batman's penthouse. Bring it down. The elevator takes Batman past the computer station, down to the communications center. There's a Batman trophy room, working elevator, and a bookcase with secret hiding compartment. Where'd he go? That's the secret. Batman's Wayne Foundation comes with all accessories shown. Batman figures sold separately. By Mego. Starlog Magazine, issue number 18, December 1978. Log Entries, news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Science fiction, endangered species? One dollar can help save the original creature from the Black Lagoon, Mr. Spock's ears, 
the first stop-motion model ever built by Ray Harryhausen, the first-ever animated dinosaurs from the silent Lost World, a Martian death machine from The War of the Worlds, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, UFO models, the original manuscript from A.E. Van Boat's classic novel Slan, five of Dr. Lau's Seven Faces, monsters from TV's Outer Limits, the Thing's right arm, masks from The Mole People and Planet of the Apes, rare paintings by Ray Bradbury and Robert Block, and original artwork by Frank R., Hans Bach, and Virgil Finlay. So this article talks about super collector Forrest J. Ackerman. He's asking that people donate $1 to keep this collection going. I mean, you got to figure this was a super fan. His mansion was just filled with everything that you could possibly think of from the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and horror of that day and earlier. And so he allowed people to come into that, his house and tour the Acker Mansion and look at all these items because he felt that it was necessary to preserve them. And and that is so cool that he, he wanted to keep these things because, I mean, it's like he knew later on people would, would really value these. Like, oh, wow, look at the Like, they actually kept that because a lot of stuff from old movies uh, isn't still around today. That's right. And so a lot of people did respond to this. And they enjoyed going to his house, and he was able to maintain the collection because of the generosity. Think about it. One dollar, sending that in to preserve these artifacts, was a dollar well spent. Greetings, Star Pod Log. This is Matt Porter from Planet Kiss Room, jamming on guitar and jamming your frequencies to talk about Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Saturday, October 28th, 1978, I was 10 years old and totally into Kiss and Star Wars and comic books and monster movies and pretty much the exact same as I am now. So, of course, the broadcast of Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park was a huge event. And I remember having a blast watching with my brothers and my sister. It was great fun. It was filled with Kiss music and action and even the classic Universal Monsters battling Kiss in the Chamber of Thrills. So what's not to love? I mean, of course, the ending didn't make a lot of sense, but we all felt good knowing that Kiss had triumphed and everyone could rock and roll all night. I've watched the movie dozens of times over the years, and I can always enjoy it. Is it cheesy? Of course it is. Is it perfect? You call some baboon doing the herky-jerky perfection? Lay off, man. But of course, it is fun. Absolutely fun. The Kiss Army makes our fun the way we want to, man. Get it? It's always fun to hang out with Sam and Melissa and Kiss. And I still enjoy watching Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park 40 years later. U.S. Invaded by Doctor Who. You might not recognize the name, but Doctor Who is a legend in his own time. For 15 years, a British TV institution and an unqualified success in 30 foreign countries, he is still relatively unknown in the United States. Although the PBS stations ran some of his older exploits in 1975, very few Americans know of his fame. WORTV Channel 9 in New York and other affiliated stations hope to remedy that situation this fall. In October 7th, at 6.30 p.m., a brand new Doctor Who will premiere 
bringing with him the strange associates, weird new worlds, and incredible monsters that have made famous his half-hour serialized SF adventures. So imagine that. 1978. Americans would be able to latch on to the Doctor Who phenomena. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, the show had already, you know, been on in England for so long. I really thought it came to the U.S. sooner than that, than than 78. But PBS was known for bringing over British shows. So this fit with the format. Yeah, and it like it did that he it says they they did run it in 75, but that was it. So, I mean, yeah, it's great that the, that they finally did have it regularly because it it really was it was I think it was more of an underground hit but a lot of a lot of people we know sci-fi geeks actually loved it yeah it's interesting it said due to the popularity of Star Wars WOR has taken the rights to this latest who series so when 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 you hear reports of Star Wars taking the world by storm it truly did because it opened up the possibilities of all different science fiction films, television shows, books, everything to the mass public consciousness. It's amazing. I mean, I mean, really, I don't even think of Doctor Who as being anything like Star Wars. Not at all. <laughs> Strong men on screen. In the midst of the futuristic film wave, two motion picture companies have made a back-to-basics move in the realm of screen heroics, as Star Wars and Close Encounters crews feverishly attempt to get their sequels underway, Warner Communications and Paramount plan an equally expensive assault on the visual series that is strictly earthbound as well as muscle-bound. So the article goes on to say that plans for bringing Tarzan to the big screen as well as Conan the Barbarian are coming out of the phenomena of these science fiction films. Why do you think that is? I, I mean, I see it more as um, a superhero thing, as the you know Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk were on TV. So, so why not bring some of these other things to life? Yeah, I don't necessarily tie in Tarzan and Conan to Star Wars and Close Encounters. I like how the article says that Conan is closer to Tolkien than Star Wars, which, uh, true, but not exactly. But I think what that they were looking at is the audience, not necessarily the subject matter. They realized that geeks like certain movies, and especially things that are based, based on literary works. These are classics, Tarzan and Conan. Why not take a shot at it? It, it was a good idea. I mean, the, I mean, Conan was a hit. So, so they, they did kind of know the audience. It was something that, that was, that did well in Hollywood. Hi, this is Mike. And this is Kylie. And we are going to be talking about the, the article from The Empire Strikes Back, an interview with Gary Kurtz, who was a phenomenal producer that really was truly the right hand to George Lucas and in many ways is credited with the direction of the actors on set, especially during Star Wars after what has not often been reported but is a fact, and that is the exhaustion that George Lucas suffered and was actually hospitalized for, and Gary Kurtz stepped in and did a phenomenal uh, job in coaching up the, the actors. 
Oftentimes, Lucas unfortunately takes a bit of a hit when it comes to uh, his direction of actors, uh, especially when it comes to the prequels now. But Gary Kurtz is often credited with being able to get a lot out of Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and, of course, Mark Hamill. But this article is focused around The Empire Strikes Back and the introduction of it. And, of course, we know that New Hope came out in 1977. And this article came out in 1978. Uh, and to be honest, I was so young in 1978 that I was not really fully aware of a sequel. I was still uh, eating up every possible morsel of Star Wars I could possibly find. In fact, the action figures had barely been released by this point. But... The article really, really explains a lot of uh, things that we would consider urban legend or folklore now, um, such as the fact that there was going to be 12 episodes. Mm -hmm. Well, and when this came out, I was not even an idea or a fetus, but um, this was about 10 years before my time. But once I got into Star Wars at a pretty young age, I remember being incredibly overjoyed and excited because sequels to movies was not something I was exposed to a lot. Um, mostly because a lot of sequels were not worth watching. And um, so when I found out there was a second Star Wars, I was absolutely over the moon. And that continued when I found out there was a third Star Wars. But um, the article specifically addresses the fact that even while they're still going through the process of making Empire Strikes Back, they already know and they've already got plans for a third. And you can tell that um, that's the direction that they're heading. They're not rushing a story. They know exactly what they need to be doing to avoid a formulaic sequel. He specifically uses Jaws 2 as an example of what not to do. Um where, you know, you use the things that a lot of producers will use the things that they think made the first movie great and skip the things that really made it great. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, Empire is so many people's favorite of the three original movies. Mike, I think it's your, is it your favorite? Oh, it's my, yeah, it's it's my favorite. Uh, and I mean, it's arguably the best. Uh, now, when I was 10 years old return of the jedi was my favorite because it had the happy course, ending to good it guy wins. and right uh but as i've gotten older i realize um just how high the uh the the bar was set by empire with respect to uh its direction uh under Irvin kershner uh the writing by lawrence kasdan and of course lee brackett is mentioned in the article as having been the original screen uh Playwriter, but she passed away due to cancer, if I'm not mistaken, uh, after only turning in her first draft. Uh, she's um, credited with writing the um, many westerns, actually, of the uh, and some of which were John Wayne films. So uh, she was a prolific screenwriter uh, of well, that era. Yeah, she she had twelve tales. They say that was the Adventures of Luke Skywalker set, and that's kind of where it all started um apparently george took it after she passed and did some minor modifications but which is really his wheelhouse but then um like you said mike kurtz came in and um just 
pulled some things out of the actors that you hadn't seen in the first movie. And I, um, as a hobby, I cosplay as Leia in her many different forms. And Mike, you cosplay as Han Solo. Mm -hmm. And I think that this, it, when I'm looking for emotions and when I'm looking for things to mimic, the Empire's probably the go-to movie because of the breadth of, you know, emotion and um, character that comes out. Yes, uh, especially for our two characters because um, for Han Solo, he's really uh, given a central character in this uh, particular episode. Uh, whereas in uh, Return of the Jedi, he is uh, diminished in his role uh, to a great degree. Uh, and in New Hope, he's obviously not introduced until um, well into the uh, first slash second act. Uh, but in Empire, he is you know, immediately uh, in the film with uh, you know, the, the speaking part to Luke. Uh, regarding the uh, the meteor, and then ultimately saves Luke, and then he saves Leia, and then Leia his, saves him. You know, it's back and forth hero. as we go, yeah. right? Uh, and and we find him ultimately at the end being even the one that is tortured to draw Luke in. So there's a lot going on with the Han Solo character, uh, and I think that's where Kasdan shines as the screenwriter because he knows how to write Han Solo. So that that's what makes this one so much fun. But I think it's it's great to read about in the article again what Gary Kurtz says about the fact that he thought that they would not actually end up numbering the episodes because it would create confusion because they had the idea of writing the prequels and producing the prequels at some point. But this is, in fact, the first film in which they do put the Episode 5 title on it. Um, yeah, I think he mentioned maybe calling it episode two, but then it would get confusing because of the prequel setup mm -hmm. that would ultimately exist. And then in the 1981 re-release of New Hope is the first time we see episode four. So for anybody who didn't see it in the theaters or had uh, a, a a form of, um, of you know the memory effect, what am I thinking of for uh, the the, the uh, um, Mandela, Mandela effect? Yeah, the <laughs> Mandela effect. So if you're having the Mandela effect, you're thinking, oh my goodness, I don't remember seeing that. Well, you're right. In the theater, the episodes didn't exist on New Hope. In fact, there's been a lot of changes to the, the title sequences throughout the years. So the VHS is what many of us watched it on or rewatched it on over the years. So I think it's pretty fascinating, too, that the episodes were not initially um, thought about, uh, but now they're extensively expressed. That and the fact that there's supposed to be 12 films, and of course... What is even more ironic about that is I think Lucas suffers from his own Mandela effect because in in uh, recent interviews he's claimed that no, there was only ever supposed to be nine. And But you can go back and see him on the Today Show saying 12. Gary Kurtz here in this article in Starlog is saying 12. And well, this is 1978. Yeah, her original stories were 12 stories. Right. Um, um, of course, Lee Brackett uh, only came on for The Empire, though. She had not been previously attached to... Uh, the ideas that Lucas had had presented, as far as I know, anyway, uh, that had always been Lucas's ideas going all the way back to the early 70s, uh, well, prior to American Graffiti. And then Brackett came on and then wrote the first draft and then passed away and Kasdan picked it up. Lucas, in fact, uh, didn't even have to give her the credit, um, but did it uh, to honor her. 
for having um, uh, actually added to the um, screenplay, even though they didn't use much of hers ultimately, according to the annotated um, screenplays. Well, I like back to the article. I um, yeah, I just I, I like how they emphasize that it's um, what did he call it? Said it's an um, anti sequel theme. Mm. So, like, it can stand on its own. And at any given time, you can watch one of these three movies, and the middle one doesn't feel like a middle one, other than, you know, as a child, I was traumatized because the bad guys won, and I didn't know there would be a third movie. Um, <laughs> right. So that was upsetting to me. But as an adult, I can go back and watch this one, and it has a beginning end. You know, it is a phenomenally standalone. It is. Uh, of course, Joss Whedon um, has criticized Empire for being a film in which there was clearly a cliffhanger, so to speak, to it that uh, we're left with. But when you see the three in totality, you see what Lucas originally written was one full movie, and then you realize that when he was done writing The New Hope treatment, it was far too big uh, for just one film. He had really completed one film in just that first act. So to break it up into three acts over three films was a unique idea. Of course, now we see it. Again, you talk about formulas. Every film seems like it needs to be a trilogy, whether it deserves to be a trilogy or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's where you see what you talked about in Jaws 2 that Kurtz referred to, is that you end up with films that... Um, either were written with no intent of ever having either A, a sequel, or B, a, a trilogy, or this misbegotten idea that everything must have a prequel now ever since the um, prequels of Star Wars. Of course, now they call them origin stories or some other yes. uh, title in order to, to Capitalize uh, reboot. Capitalize on that good, good money. Well, well, and that's some of it, too, is when, you know, if a movie goes over well... They're going to make that cash grab really fast, slap together something, call it number two, and throw it out there. And this was intentionally steered away from that. They they tried new effects that had never been done before. They tried. It wasn't just a rehashing of the original thing or grabbing, you know, the most popular scene and changing it slightly and slapping it into a different planet or a different, you know, setting. And I... I really appreciate that because that's a lot more thought than goes into a lot of sequels now um, but they purposely went out of their way to find out what made it special and arguably some of that's whatever that magic is is missing in the newer movies and I don't know if that's nostalgia or what talking but um, I feel like they missed the mark there with the new movies where you just didn't go back and break down what made it absolutely magical but that he really captured new hope back in empire well yeah and i think that what i've said um uh for for as long as these new ones have existed um is that there was no showrunner so to speak uh, you know that's a contemporary term and that didn't really exist at that point but lucas was the idea guy and as critical as we as we star wars fans or at least some Star Wars fans have been of Lucas uh, especially regarding the prequels it was always his idea so he knew where he wanted to get to beginning middle and end whether we agree or not as to how he got to some of those uh, spots 
um, is can be argued, but he knew where he wanted to go with it. Unfortunately, with these new ones, we were never really certain who was writing out the totality of the story, and it seems as though they were changing the story based on reaction to fans or reactions to critics or re uh, reactions to whomever rather than just simply writing the stories themselves and allowing the, the stories to tell the tale. And ultimately, you know, we got, I guess we got to wrap up or run short on time, but I think ultimately the the idea that this is the hero's journey uh, is is what you have to follow. And it's not about writing the characters. It's about... You know, what do the characters do that are already written when you put them in any situation? The story then writes itself. You put the hero in the story, their very existence guides the, the path of the story. These seem to have been... Because you're building a character. You're building a consistent character with personality and with, you know, um, pre-existing attributes. You can't just change those every time no. it sells a better action figure or makes a cooler costume yeah and i think that's what made these so exciting i think it's what kurtz taught talked about early on in the article was that it was going to be a big space reunion with mark hamill and carrie fisher and harrison ford we were going to get the characters that we loved once again and we we're going to put them in a completely different situation in which they were on the wrong end of the of the the film throughout uh, and of course we go on and on about the film itself and how many wonderful beats it has Galactica heroes Dirk Benedict and Richard Hatch explain their swashbuckling alter egos, Starbuck and Apollo, two crazy kind of guys. When I saw the title of this article, I couldn't help to think about Steve Martin on Saturday Night Live. That's what We're I was two thinking. two wild and crazy guys. So, so that is where they got that from, right? <laughs> if if you, what you, that was on before this article? I may imagine so. Dirk Benedict and Richard Hatch, do you consider them two wild and crazy guys? <laughs> well, no, maybe, um, I mean, maybe Starbucks character was. I, I mean, I, I always liked, um, Starbucks character. I mean, so he was the good looking one, you know? He, he was the, um, the standard handsome stud of the show. Mm -hmm. Did you always like him? Like, I do did. everything that he did? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like later on, he went to do the A Team. Loved mm -hmm. that show and loved mm -hmm. him on it. Yeah, yeah. And Dirk Benedict, of course, I've seen him at cons, and Richard Hatch too. But I, but I know well, like Richard Hatch has been a staple at cons. Yeah, like he's right up there with Lou Ferrigno and the ones who who yeah, do want go and they Captain Kirk. I mean, to, there's some um, that just do it all the time. Went to Dragon Con every year. Absolutely, yeah. sure. So, so Dirk Benedict was at was at Vulcan one year, and they did. I mean, like. That they had, you know, their main Star Trek guest, but also, but I, that was the year I did, one of the years I did the banquet, and so, and I got to sit at Dirk Benedict's table. Oh, nice. It was pretty interesting. So, yeah, I found out, like, he's, he's vegetarian, and, and at the time, he had two young children, and that's mostly what he talked about. He said what he was into at the time was, was raising his kids, but he, he was a pretty interesting guy. And, and so this article says, yeah, this is really interesting how he never really tried to do anything, but things just happened. He got acting jobs when he wasn't really trying that hard. And then he went two years without a job, but he still survived. He just had fun all that time, fishing and whatever, doing stuff like that, pursuing other hobbies. Yeah, it just happens with some people. You hear horror stories with some actors just going out for parts and they never get them. And then others just fall on their lap constantly. But he looks like he struck gold with this part. 
he would know how long this the Battlestar Galactica fan base would would continue to love him decades later. Yeah, for, it was a short-lived show, but the fans uh, still carried it on. What about Richard Hatch? And, and he's a nice guy too. I mean, he, you know, I think his character on the show, you know, what wasn't really as interesting for me when I was watching it as as a child. Mm-hmm. But but he he is a really interesting guy. I mean, he's he's very philosophical. He he's a science fiction fan, which which is really neat. I always like that when actors love the parts that they're in in the world of sci-fi because they're a fan of the genre. So they get it. I think that they work extra hard, especially at the techno babble, because they know how important it is to us who follow the series. And I like how he says like like he he thought of Apollo as a renaissance man. I mean, it kind of makes me want to go back and watch the show. Like, really? He was? <laughs> <laughs> it's totally rewatchable. That's another show, Glenn Larson Project, that and Buck Rogers. I mean, they're products of the time, but you can rewatch them now, and they just have a, a certain amount of fun factor to them. Yeah, you have to go back and just um, enjoy the campiness. And this one wasn't as campy as Buck Rogers. Not at all. I mean, it, you know, it did have some good stuff in it. It was actually in space and it had all the characters and, and, and it had that, um, that heart, you know, and that liveliness. And, and Starbuck and Apollo, the way they were best friends, the way they played off each other, it, it was, it was, it was great. And, and, you know, it's so different from, you know, from the remake, which I guess we don't have to talk about, but you know how they changed the characters in the remake. I kind of wish it just, when they did that remake, they just call it something else because it's so different. Yeah, it was it was very loosely inspired by by this original show. Presenting the world's greatest Mego heroes, Mego's new line of 14-inch figures, the world's mightiest mortal, Shazam! 14-inch Mego figures. Gotham's Dark Knight, it's Batman. 14-inch Mego figures. Here's the Man of Steel, Superman. 14-inch Mego figures. 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. Uh, we have on with us a very special guest. If you're into Mego collecting especially, you'll know the name. It's none other than Dr. Mego himself, Paul Clark. Welcome, Paul. Hi. Well, thanks for having me. Hey, Paul. You a Starlog fan growing up? Oh, absolutely. Starlog was was pretty much the way you found out what was coming up. And it's interesting. In this issue of Starlog, we have the 1978-1979 Science Fiction Merchandise Guide. Mm-hmm. You had to be a fan of ordering things through the mail when you were a kid. Absolutely. I had a Darth Vader poster on my bedroom wall and the uh, and the movie poster, the first Hildebrandt. I love that artwork. I still have it up on the wall in my house. Well, did you order things like we're just going to go through this catalog and, and talk about some of these companies? I know some of them were epic. How about the Intergalactic Trading Company out of Longwood, Florida? Did you ever remember them? Yeah. They, I was also into Space 1999. Yes. They were known for having that. Even list that here. It was near like Star Wars or Star Trek. Yeah. But, yeah, um, but it, would, it says right here, Star Wars, Galactica, Space 1999, etc. Pictures, I, posters, buttons, badges, T-shirt. I remember having the Commander Koenig doll. Yes, uh, Mattel. That yep. was Mattel. Mego only had the license in Europe after Palatoy. Now, how about this? The Imperial Trading Post out of Honolulu, Hawaii. Yeah, I don't think I ever got there, but... Uh... 
but um, um yeah, it was. Uh, looks like somebody's running out of their apartment. Um, oh, that's under. Co- oh, was he doing costumes? A little bit of everything there. Even the sci-fi search service. Posters and costumes. Yeah, yeah. Back then, before videotapes, all you had was slides. Slides and films. There's a whole section here for films, like Thunderbeard films, Hyperspace Enterprises, (laughs) Canterbury films out of Great Neck, New York. They sell Super 8 and 16 millimeter sound films. Yeah, it was uh, actually Great Neck, New York is where Migo's located now. Isn't that wild? I wonder how far away Migo is from 15 Canterbury Road. I think I know where Canterbury is. (laughs) Do you remember mailing away from Migo dolls? Absolutely. Uh, Heroes World advertised in the comic books. And I remember going to my mom with, you know, a couple, you know, well-worn dollars and asking to get a check to mail away for four to six weeks to get a Mego Iron Man. That Mego Iron Man was epic. I, oh. I love that when you looked at his face, you could see his eyes and <laughs> flesh underneath his helmet. That just that little attention to detail instead of painting the eyes black and the mouth you know what i mean like like, comics yeah Yeah. there's like there's someone underneath here this is amazing i think they want to convey that this was a guy not like a rope all right how about this company tally ho studios they sell (laughs) super mint gum card sets (laughs) star wars life-size figures now I've heard them called gum cards before, but never super mint. I know they make figures like large size dolls, but I never heard them being called life size before. Yeah, I, you know, there was no rules back then. You know. James Bond items, too. <clears throat> well, you know, they used to have, remember, somebody made, I forget who, but had jointed life size superheroes and Planet of the Apes. <clears throat> they were like, uh, Cardboard cutouts that you could. I definitely remember that. I remember having the Spider-Man one. Yeah. Yeah. And a skeleton one. The skeleton one glowed in the dark. And I believe my grandfather ordered it from Famous Monsters of Filmland. (laughs) Another great magazine where you could order stuff from. Yeah. Most of the time, whenever I asked for something, I got no. (laughs) No. That's the default answer when you're a kid. No. (laughs) Can I get this? No. Can we go here? No. How about this one? There's even props that you could order. Now, this is what really impresses me for 78. You got to figure there was no Internet. There was no really mass market way of designing things, building. No, no uh, laser printers or or what should I say? uh, 3D printers. Hyperspace Enterprises out of Landers, California, was making finely detailed replicas from Star Wars. Troop and solo blasters and lightsabers. Oh, boy. <laughs> Damn. That's, that's pretty cool. You have to send away for the catalog. That was a big thing at that time. Send away for a catalog. Yes, because that was how you – that was your, your website. Yes. In the modern polarities. You know, that was how you had to uh, to find out what somebody sold. There were comic book dealers that used to make a catalog. Oh, you're not kidding. I remember getting the Mile High catalog and, and feeling like I, I was holding a, a pot of gold. Just even yeah. if I couldn't get all this stuff, I just loved yeah. looking at the catalog. That's right. Just got to learn a lot just reading it. Yes. That's what we did with our time. We poured over merchandise guides like this, just dreaming about the stuff that was out there. 
Yeah, if you take 35 cents to send for a catalog just to see what they were selling. Yes, you're right. You're right. In fact, under the listing of special services, and, and I'm really impressed because this section of anytime Starlog has one of these merchandise guys, they print it on that yellow paper, kind of like what was in yellow pages in the phone book. Yes, yes. Because you knew that if it was yellow pages, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking up to buy something. I'm, I got money yep. ready. How about this one? Connecticon 2 out of Hartford, Connecticut. Never heard of that one. Galacticon. Yeah. So that had to be something that was really pushing Battlestar Galactica, I imagine. Probably, says, yeah. Check out yeah, these guests, was... though. Forrest J. Ackerman, oh, Jim yeah. Danforth. Mission is only $2. I mean, Battlestar Galactica is less well-known now, but that was like your TV Star Wars. It sure was. You know, that, that gave you more bang for your buck week after week than, a, than being able to go to a Star Wars movie. I mean, as much as we look at the, this nostalgia of, of these old toys and collectibles, I remember when, when Mego came back, you, you, you mentioned getting your first Iron Man doll. I yes. remember getting, I remember getting the Batman. I, I was super excited about all the Batman and Robin and, and Joker and Penguin. I used to, I used to watch Batman and Star Trek back to back on, on Channel 11, 11 Alive. That's right. I was and, there too. And, See, Channel 11, WPIX. Oh, man, having all those Mego dolls on, on the floor, it was so much fun, me and my brother playing. And Mego brought back this this excitement a few years ago. Yep, and we did. I would watch, I, I watch, I dream of Jeannie just to get to Star Trek. <laughs> You'd watch a show just to get to another show. Because if you walked away, somebody else would change the channel. <laughs> you had to camp out in the living room. It was a treacherous yeah. family you had there, Paul. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm one of seven. Whoa, whoa. So you, you, and I was number six. So you had to hustle. Well, you know what? When Mego came back in 2018, we hustled to get a lot of those Mego dolls. <laughs> and, and, and I think because collectors were clamoring for them and, and more and more are coming out. I mean, especially with all these licenses like the DC Heroes and the Monsters I mean, let, let's talk about let's talk about how Mego now is recreating the the feeling of the '70s for this generation. Well, uh, Marty's running the company. I mean, the man that, uh, that owned it in the '70s owns it now. Um, I'm there just to to fill in what 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 was and what we should be doing. You know, I try to bring a little bit of the old stuff into the new, um, but I have been begging for a couple of years for, for Planet of the Apes. I was like, that was quintessential Mego. And Star Trek, absolutely Mego. Um, and we want to go do a lot into Star Trek because it's a very loyal fan base that really embraces Mego. What about some of the other licenses that are being brought in? Uh, horror is the biggest seller. Horror outsells every other category. So, I can believe it. The detail on that creature from the Black Lagoon is amazing. Oh, that's that's. I'm an old monster kid, so I want to do a Belagosi Dracula, Carla Frankenstein. Yes. Uh, you know the the Lon Chaney Wolfman and the creature. And I I said to him, he go, we can just keep making creatures, because they will just keep selling. What about the DC superheroes? Let's talk about that. That is, that is completely awesome. We started with the 14 inch. And now we're in the 8-inch, 
trying not to just do I don't want to just do what we what Migo did in the past. I want to kind of you know there's so many variations now of the DC superheroes. I'd like to try to do more, you know, into into a younger generation. So instead of doing the Barry Allen Flash, we did the Wally West Flash. Instead of the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, we did the John Stewart. Doesn't mean we won't do Barry and Hal, but just right off the bat, we you know, I want to do something different. Kind of bring in a, a younger crowd. And what do you think the response has been? What have you heard the response being from those of us who bought Mego back in the 70s and 80s? I, seems like everybody's digging it. I mean, I, I just everyone's really thrilled that we did a black and gray Batman. You know, he's not smiling. He's not the TV Batman. He's not the Mego Batman. You know, he's the Dark Knight detective. You know, it's more like a Batman year one with a big cape. And that's what I think is exciting. We're looking at this merchandise catalog, and we look at all the things that used to be available on the market that aren't available anymore. But when it comes to Mego, we could still get that excitement going into stores and finding current Mego dolls. And that's right. It, 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 it's like going – it's taking a blast to the past. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's what we're working on. You know, that's what we're trying to do. Keep it, keep it vintage for the old guys and bring in a new generation. To, who who has grown up? Migo is legendary. Everybody knows Migo. As we as Marty and I started to go out and do some shows, people already knew it. We didn't have to explain anything. You know, it was it when we went into Target and then into Walmart. You know, the buyers were Migo fans. What's the best place for our listeners to check out Migo if they're not familiar with where to find uh, Migo? Well, the Migo Museum. Is still got to be the best resource, MigoMuseum.com. Uh, we have Migo Corp. Uh, we've got the Migo Ambassadors Facebook page, um, MigoFigures.com to see what product we've done since uh, coming back. Um, we're always trying to do the do the past, but also keep an eye to the future. And we just announced the deal with Hasbro to do eight-inch. Uh, G.I. Joe, uh, Snake Eyes, and Storm Shadow. It'll be available on, me, on on Hasbro Pulse. It's absolutely amazing. We saw the sculpts for those, and they're epic. There's no doubt about it that if if Mego was, had that license, if there was such a thing, we know that G.I. Joe, that's a Hasbro product, but if Mego was involved in the 80s doing that, this is what it would be. So, I mean, it's... Yes. It's like you said, it's looking to the future, but it still has a homage to the past. Yep, that's that's the key. Well, we're going to put a link to all those sites that you mentioned in our show notes. So our listeners could just look below, click on those links because we love Migo. And, Paul, thanks again for your time. We look forward Thank to seeing you, you again at a, another convention. Yes, you will. <laughs> Art the Magazine closes out with a classified section, which – I loved reading the classified sections, and we're going to pick one to talk about. This one says, Rent an Alien. Looking for something wild and unique to spark your next party? We offer a selection of over a dozen different completely costumed aliens, many favorites from movies and TV such as C-3PO, the mutant from This Island Earth, and The Fly. Terrific for personal appearance promotions and special events. Use your imagination, and we'll supply the creature 
that will make sure the guests never forget your party. Prices range from $50 to $100 for a one-hour appearance, depending on which alien you want to travel in the New York City area. Contact Starlog Magazine Renton Alien. Oh my god, that would that's like a rich kid's party or something. <laughs> Do you want to have the fly at your party? <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.